Welcome to ACE Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in as we elevate clinical endocrinology by taking deep dives into trends and topics that can help us improve our patient care and global health. Find the latest episodes on aace.com slash podcasts. And now let's meet the endocrine experts who will be talking with us today. Hello and welcome to this new ACE podcast. My name is Vin Tank Preacher, and I'm going to be the host of today's podcast. I am the editor-in-chief of Endocrine Practice, and I have the pleasure today to introduce one of the really interesting topics that has been published in the April issue of Endocrine Practice, a ACE disease state clinical review on minimally invasive interventional procedures in the management of benign and malignant thyroid lesions. And we're fortunate today to have Dr. Sina Jasm, who was the first author and chair of these guidelines, here today to discuss them with us. Dr. Jasm, thank you very much for joining. She is an associate professor at Washington University in St. Louis. We're delighted you're here today. Tell us a little bit about what you do at WashU. Thank you, Dr. Tank Preacher. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I am very excited to talk about this uh, recent uh, work that we had and published in endocrine practice. I am associate professor at Washington University in St. Louis uh, in the endocrine Depart- division of internal medicine. I've been at WashU in the last five to six years. I mainly run the thyroid practice. I practice mainly focus on thyroid nodules, thyroid cancer, mm-hmm. and I also manage endocrine neoplasia that's related to thyroid and adrenal disease. Okay, great. So you are a thyroid expert. <laughs> if you like the call it so. <laughs> thank yeah. you. So first, before we jump in the article, tell us why ACE thought it was important to put together this new guideline on these procedures. What was going on in the thyroid field? Sure. So as we all know, since the most recent ACE and American Thyroid Association practice guidelines, which been a few years ago, there's more and more literature and more in practice, actually, of cases regarding the minimally invasive procedures, uh, especially in the United States. These procedures have been going on for a while, more than a decade outside the United States, but we've been using them more and more. That has not reflected on the guidelines yet. So ACE has identified uh, this as a knowledge gap that we needed to come with uh, a statement that summarize what's the existing literature that make more endocrinologists aware of these procedures, indications, complications, and so on. So when we talk about minimally invasive procedures, we're talking about everything but surgery, right? That is correct. Mm -hmm. And so tell us what are the most common minimally invasive uh, procedures that endocrinologists or primary care doctors might see out in the community? Right. So there are multiple minimally invasive non-surgical procedures that's currently available and offered to patients. I will focus mainly on the one that we currently use in the United States, and there are available clinics and centers that provide them. 
those are divided into two things. One of them is ethanol ablation, which has been in use for a while now. And then there are what we call the thermal ablation. The thermal ablation include things like radio frequency ablation, microwave mm-hmm. ablation, laser ablation. But what's most available in United States is radio frequency ablation. And that's why if you look at our article, it focuses a lot on the radio frequency ablation because mm-hmm. it's the most available and more data actually are available mm-hmm. on this. So who's doing these procedures? Is this something that endocrinologists are doing or or our surgical colleagues or, I mean, anyone who gets the training? Who is really doing this? Yeah, that's a very good question. We're we're trying to gear this article to have more endocrinologists aware of it and more endocrinologists getting the training to do it. Currently, endocrinologists with interest and sufficient training do it. Surgery like ENT, head and neck surgery or endocrine surgeons, as well as radiologists and interventional radiologists. Sometimes it depends on the institution and the level of training. Uh, we want more and more people to be aware of it and more endocrinologists to participate in more training since endocrinologists are also part of the diagnostic and follow-up process of those cases. So uh, how can an endocrinologist get trained in these procedures? So part of the purpose that ACE actually wanted to create this document is to have one of the knowledge gap closed by sharing the knowledge of what's available and what the literature is saying. Mm-hmm. The next step would be how to involve the training, whether a more advanced training courses, whether during fellowship or during society ultrasound courses to get more and more training. Like any procedures, the person has to be uh, sufficiently trained in ultrasound Uh, anatomy and uh, fine needle aspiration to be able to perform these procedures. And so we are working with ACE and other society to advance the courses and provide them to as many trainees as possible. So, I mean, it sounds like if you get the training at a course, it's something that you could apply for credentialing at your hospital, or is there a specific certificate you need to do these procedures? How does that work? So currently, there's no standard process on how to do that. It is advisable to learn as much as possible through reading, attending courses and seminars. Up to now, there were courses that's offered more in outside United States, actually in Brazil and Korea and Italy. Most of the people who are performing it here in United States have trained there and came back to expand the knowledge. Luckily, now we have more centers that offer these courses, not necessarily with the certificate of those, but that's not a necessary necessity to perform these procedures. Obviously, the more training, the more cases are done, the better. Most of the literature, when we talk about complications, these are actually in experienced hand. Roughly, when we discuss with the expert's opinion, a physician need to have at least 50 done to be comfortable and to minimize the risk of complication to call it safe. Okay, great. Well, that's really important. Uh, I think that it certainly sounds like we need to get more training and maybe this is something we need to incorporate in endocrine fellowship training programs to get people the training before they graduate. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. I totally agree. Yeah. So let's jump into the first non-invasive procedure. You mentioned the ethanol ablation. (laughs) So um, tell us what 
are the main indications for this procedure and what are some of the pitfalls we should be watching out for? Sure. So ablational ablation is one of the oldest ablation techniques that's done initially actually started uh, for liver cancer. And it's being used for thyroid nodules, mainly in uh, Italy, actually, since the 90s for thyroid nodules. With time, it falls out of favor for solid thyroid nodules because of the complication with pain and the difficulty of diffusing alcohol in a solid nodule. So currently, most society guidelines in Asia and Europe recommend uh, pure ethanol ablation for purely cystic lesions. In some institutions here, sometimes they use it for recurrent thyroid cancer or lymph node in a specific size uh, and how many nodules are involved, how many lymph nodes are involved. But the main indication really to use it safely currently is a purely cystic lesions. The referral to tertiary centers to perform these procedures is still really important because alcohol, as safe as it can be, it can be also dangerous because if it extra outside the thyroid, it could lead to fibrosis and necrosis of the tissue. It works by necrotizing the tissue and uh, denaturing the protein and create a coagulative necrosis. And so it is safe, but if it's not done correctly, it could lead to tissue necrosis and fibrosis. So we typically think of it mostly when, when there is a pure thyroid cyst that we aspirate and it keep recurring. One of the options now for recurrent thyroid cysts is surgical resection. So that might be an alternative to use in these cases. So that was my question. So why would you choose ethanol ablation over surgery? What would be some of the uh, factors that tip you one way or the other? Many patients do not want surgery or neck scar for a simple cyst that we know it's benign. And also if it ends up having lobectomy, some patient might be at higher risk of developing hypothyroidism or requiring some sort of thyroid replacement. Mm -hmm. So if patient is not interested in having a surgical scar or undergoing general anesthesia or having a surgery, that might be a good safe and alternative option in a safe hand. Okay, that makes sense. So let's say the ethanol ablation is used. What is the standard follow-up and do you ultrasound these later or, or is it sort of a one and done and you're finished or what is the recommended follow-up for these patients that receive this procedure? Yeah, that's an excellent question because sometimes the person performing the ethanol ablation might not be the same person following that that patient. Generally, after the procedure, majority of patients might require one session, but they might require more than one session, especially if the cyst is is too big. But generally, an ultrasound follow-up is recommended at least every six months for two to three years to make sure that cyst has not recurred and the cyst has resolved. And so we do recommend uh, short-term and long-term follow-up for these patients. Mm -hmm. And in terms of long-term follow-up, is there any concern with the alcohol? I mean, could there be some, I mean, I, I would be concerned of some, you know, I mean, does it cause atypia in the cells? Does it cause any problems in the cells that you, a, that you eliminate with the alcohol? Oh, that's a very good question, actually. That's one of the questions that nice to have some sort of study to look for it. After most of these ablative techniques, the architect of that nodule will change. Mm -hmm. 
And so currently it is really not recommended to biopsy a nodule after ethanol ablation because the way it will look, it will be different and it might actually have some interesting and even suspicious sonographic features. So sonographic features after those procedures is an interesting topic. And when they looked at it, although the studies are not that major or big, there is no cancer involvement in it, but it is not recommended to biopsy it because it will look different because of that fibrosis. So you got to be really certain that these are benign lesions before you start uh, putting Absolutely. Out. Yes. So for the cyst, I think purely cystic lesions are typically benign, but for solid nodule, the requirement currently is two benign cytology prior to going through okay. these procedures. So mm -hmm. for solid two FNAs that were negative before you consider ethanol ablation. For cystic, none. You can just go by ultrasound features and say, okay, benign, put alcohol in it. So for the cystic lesions or the very non-suspicious lesions, such as toxic nodules, mixed solid cystic, the recommendation is one benign not doesn't require two benign, one benign might be enough. If it's a very like predominantly or dominantly solid lesion, it requires two benign cytology or one benign cytology and one core biopsy. We okay. don't do that often of core biopsy. So two, two benign cytology would be okay. enough. I think that's really helpful for our audience to understand because I think we, you really want to make sure we're dealing with a benign lesion because as you said, after the procedure, it's hard to interpret a future FNA results. Okay. And I want to highlight here nodules with a biopsy that's uh, AUS, so undetermined. Those should not be considered for the current procedures because we don't really know if they're benign or not. So this is okay. really just for benign, some malignant cases, but definitely not for AUS. Okay. That's really important. Yes. Uh, <laughs> some people may lump AUS under benign. Yeah. Okay. So let's move on to the radiofrequency ablation. I'm assuming that this is done less commonly than ethanol ablation, but correct me if I'm wrong. Is this less done because you need even more special equipment and training? Or I'm assuming ethanol is more widely available. You would think so, but that's not the truth. <laughs> so yeah, so alcohol actually is expensive, but yes, from technicality perspective, you don't require additional equipment is exactly the same as FNA and then do the alcohol. But there are certain centers that do it. It's not widely available as we mm -hmm. think, but also because it's the, the indications are getting more and more limited now with the advancement of radiofrequency ablation. So since radiofrequency ablation started, the use of that for both solid and mixed solid cystic nodules are more and more common. And so currently the guidelines, the Asian guideline Korea recommended pretty much for all nodules except purely cystic. The RFA destroys the tissue through combination of frictional and conduction heat. So this is a completely different way of doing it. And most thermal ablation is technically involved heat. And this high, highly generated radiofrequency uh, electric current is the cause for, for the heat destruction. And that's how it works. It does require an equipment. It is actually approved by the FDA for certain kind of indication, including the benign nodules, especially toxic nodules, especially if they are pre-toxic or small size, and some indication for recurrent cancer and some indication for currently used in some centers for micro-PTC. 
The current indication, though, is only if it's enlarging nodule, toxic nodule, obstructive nodules for benign lesions. So this is, sounds a little bit different from ethanol. These are for benign solid lesions, not cystic. And it sounds like even some recurrent cancers, right? Correct. So both alcohol and RFA used to be used for recurrent, but now with the RFA more and more, it's used more for um, lymph nodes or recurrent. So for cancer, it's used either for palliative cause, meaning there's a recurrence patient already had prior surgery. They don't want more surgery. So it could be for that reason, or it could be for primary cancer, but that's currently limited only for micro PTC, which is small cancer, less than one centimeter. But this has to be carefully, carefully selected with multidisciplinary expert mm -hmm. team, because not every small cancer is, you know, it could be, there might be a lymph node, there might be invasion, mm -hmm. and these are not the indications. What are the long-term data on micro cancers? I mean, do we have data that results in long-term remission? That's a good question. So in the short answer is not in US. There is one study done in China up to five year follow-up. And the conclusion, it was as effective, as safe as surgery in a good hand. But that's one study. So more studies are needed. It has to be carefully selected. So currently it is not recommended for cancer other than micro uh, papillary mm -hmm. thyroid cancer. So, so it's not indicated mm -hmm. for things like medullary or anaplastic. It's not indicated if there is a lymph node. Well, actually it's contraindicated if there are lymph nodes involvement or extrathyroidal extension. So it has to be really localized within the thyroid gland and you can see the margins around it to be safe to ablate it by radiofrequency ablation and be able to obliterate the margin. And are there any data comparing radiofrequency ablation versus you know, radioactive iodine therapy versus external XRT, mm. something like that? I mean, why yeah. would you choose radiofrequency ablation over other more conventional techniques? Yeah, that's a good for question. Recurrent cancer. <laughs> so none for recurrent cancer. There is generally not a lot of head-to-head -head comparison between mm -hmm. the standard of care, so to speak, which is surgery or uh, radioactive iodine versus those procedures. And there is actually no head-to-head -head comparison between, for example, RFA versus alcohol or so on and so forth. There's only one Italian study that looked at five-year follow-up of RFA versus laser in those cases. For cancer, generally, the surgery remain the gold standard, especially we're talking here in experienced hand. We're talking more about patients who are not good candidates for surgery, okay. refusing surgery, or for example, for micro PTC, some, uh, one of the options actually surveillance. And so if they don't want surveillance, but they don't want surgery, that might be a third option to consider. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, in terms of surveillance, like let's say you have the micro um, CT and micro cancer, and then they opt for radiofrequency ablation, could they do surgery later if it recurs or does it somehow mess up the cells and architecture? Walk me through the process of what happens. Yeah. So your question is if a micro PTC patient chose to go with RFA and there's a recurrence after that? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes. 
Yeah, so I think one of the issue here is carefully selecting patient because these procedures could potentially lead to tissue destruction and necrosis, which makes surgery alternate uh, as uh, mm-hmm. difficult as possible in the future. And so they have to be selected carefully. The risk of recurrence in general is low. However, there is no long-term data to look at the mm-hmm. risk of recurrence of those in those patients. So I think this is a question that's still up for debate. And for the data that's published so far, limited, but the risk of recurrence is pretty low. However, in these cases, if there is a recurrence, then we resolve to the standard of care, which is the surgical. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. So are there any other minimally invasive techniques that we haven't discussed or are coming to the market soon that you are aware of? Laser is the other technique that is as widely used as RFA outside the U.S., especially in Italy. And there are some data and a clinical trial up to five years that was done in Italy comparing both, and they were equally effective. Things like high-intensity focused ultrasound, we call it HIFU, currently is not Mm -hmm. available and the data are very limited. That's why there was one paragraph on this technique. The other is microwave ablation, which is also effective, but the data are very, very limited. And it's not available in the U.S. as well. Okay, great. Is there any other key points of the paper you'd like to bring up to bring the attention of the audience that we may have missed? So the highlight of this paper is really to document and address the use of these ablation techniques and benign and malignant conditions, because we have enough data to talk about them. We focus mostly on what are the indications. Now, realizing this is a rapidly evolving topic and the indication might be uh, changing with time based on availability and expertise. But even knowing what are these indications and when to refer patients to appropriate procedures would be helpful. And also to increase the effort to, you know, these techniques currently are not covered by multiple insurance. And there is a regional variation on what's covered and what's not covered. So we want to highlight more effort to hopefully help patient go through that. And then I need to really emphasize when we talk about these are safe and effective procedures, this is really in the experience hand. So complication might be much higher if there is no good experience. So this is to highlight mm-hmm. that experience and knowledge about these procedures are really important. Otherwise, referral to experience centers would be appropriate. Right. Well, Thank you so much for leading us through this article. I mean, I really appreciate your work. It looks fantastic. I mean, I really would like to uh, refer the audience to the paper. We didn't go through the entire article, but there's example pictures of people getting different procedures. There are tables on how people should be evaluated prior to getting procedures. And there's another table comparing surgery, RAI, and minimally invasive procedures, the pros and cons. I really would like the audience to check out the April issue of Endocrine Practice. It's currently free for download. You could read it. It's not too long, over a hundred references, but very concise and really does a great job overviewing all the different uh, options. So thank you again, Dr. Jasm, for joining us. And this has been a fantastic uh, conversation. I've learned so much too. 
Thank you. Thank you for hosting us. I appreciate that and give us the opportunity, me and my co-authors, to talk about this uh, important document. Great. Thank you. Thank you. You can join us anytime. Thanks for listening to another great ACE podcast. Join us for another episode at aace.com slash podcasts and help us in our mission to elevate clinical endocrinology. Together, we are ACE.